Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. made it. Good job. Uh, how you doing, second service? <laughs> little, little better. Um, uh, first service was weak today. I just want to say that out loud. Um, you, if you know anybody that goes to first service, call them out. Let them know. It was weak uh, this, this morning. But the good news is that um, I've got some really depressing stuff to say today. So you're in for a treat. If you needed a midwinter pick-me-up, this is not it, because um, we're going into the book of Ecclesiastes. But man, I thought Jonas was going to cut loose a few minutes ago there, like just bring a sermon. I expected to see the altars full and everything. Um, well, you ready for it? We're just, uh, the series is called Eclipsed, How to Find Meaning in the Desert. And, uh, and the title officially for today's message, the first one in this series, is um, Total eclipse, finally. Somebody knew the rest of the line, um, which means you're also old like me. So, total eclipse of the heart. But my title today is Storm Chasers. And uh, we're going to be digging into the book of Ecclesiastes. And, um, and I don't know if you know this, but everywhere you look these days, it is all bad news. Have you noticed? Like, just do a Google search, see what comes up. Um, like, everything that comes up is bad. In fact, um, the first couple of things that came up when I did it this week, and you may have heard about this, they found the Marines who had gone down in that helicopter crash. They were hoping they would find them alive. They did not. Um, and uh, U.S. Uh, hits Iraq and Syria's retaliation um, for drone strikes. It's just like, Every single article that comes up is some devastation, some death, some destruction. Um, and then, you know, this one, of course, pops up as well. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Amazon is now putting ads um, in your Prime videos unless you want to pay more money. In fact, some of you are finding out right now that that's happening. Um, and, and here's what's crazy. I've heard more people discouraged over this than the other like, how are those even on the same page, you know? And yet, at every possible front, it's just bad news. I looked at local news. You think that stuff's bad? Wait, wait till you see what's happening in Anchorage this summer. They are already have a proposal forward to ban right turn on red. Yeah, let that sink in for a little bit. <laughs> As if it weren't hard enough in the summer already. Like, like everywhere you turn, it just seems like it's more bad news. Well, I've got some good news. Ecclesiastes is filled with bad news. Like, like the whole book is how terrible things are in the world. And, and here, I'd make this observation. Ecclesiastes is one man's search for any good news in a wearisome world. And it was written about 2,900 years ago and applies perfectly in our day. In fact, 
I would challenge you just for a moment, if you think Ecclesiastes is actually all about how bad things are in the world, it's within reason you actually have missed the point of it in the past. Because the goal isn't to lead you into deeper and deeper throes of depression. There's actually a reason that he is saying the things that he's saying. There are two characters, actually, in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the um, character of the teacher. The teacher is um, Colette, is the name that's used. It simply means teacher or preacher, but he's identified a little bit later as the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. And so for that reason, most people believe that it was written by Solomon. In fact, he also identifies himself as the wisest man to ever live, but we're not explicitly told that this is written by King Solomon. It's actually written by a man who is just known as the author. And this author has collected the sayings of the teacher and then put them in Ecclesiastes for us. And the author really shows up in the very beginning in just a verse or two, and then he shows up again at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes with a summary of what the teacher's been attempting to communicate. Which brings me to Havel. Havel is a word that shows up more than 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, um, here's where you first see it, and maybe your translation has it this way. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, Havel of Havel, says the preacher, Havel of Havel, all is Havel. Maybe the translation you have is meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Let's close with a word of prayer. Because that refrain is going to show up over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the word Havel actually has a more literal, uh, tangible translation to it. It actually means mist or vapor or breath. He's saying, this is what everything I've looked at is like. You know, when you go outside on a cold morning, which um, it, now it's summer. I don't know if you've noticed that. It was 35 yesterday. So it, it was, but if you go outside on a cold morning, you go, and you can see your breath for a moment, and then it's gone. And if you tried to grab it, you'd get nothing. Right? He's saying all of life is like a breath, like a vapor. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. He's uniquely positioned to be someone who could actually search out anything that he wanted to. It, you could literally translate chapter 1, verse 2 this way. Smoke and mist, says the teacher. Vapor and breath. All is meaningless. All is temporary. All is dissipating. This word is actually used several times in the scriptures. This is in the wisdom literature, but it's also used in the book of Job when Job's describing what his life is like. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath or havel. Or Psalm 39 verse 6, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, havel. Like all of mankind, it's done. And then selah, that means pause. Think about it for a moment. Don't just move on yet. Life is a breath. And it's gone. It's interesting because 
you don't meet people at the end of their life who are like, whew, that was a long ride. I'm glad it's over. Right? Like most people coming into the end of their life just want one more day. Or when we lose someone, we want one more conversation, one more moment. Something in us cries out for more time, longer breath. Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a breath, his days like a passing shadow. Or Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Maybe that's the word you've heard before, vain. It doesn't mean like it's all pompous and arrogant and ego-driven. It means it's fleeting. It's havel. It's gone soon enough. It doesn't matter how much plastic you shoot into your face or how many Botox treatments you have. You're going to look like Michael Jackson eventually. Like, it's just not... I don't know why I said that. I didn't say it in first service. Um, <laughs> for all of our trying, we actually can't preserve those things. They're fleeting. They're not going to last forever. What do I do if I've put the majority of my energy into trying to make things that will not last last longer than they ever were designed to? So the author writes this in Ecclesiastes 1, 2 through 8. Everything is meaningless. Can I get a witness? No? Okay. We'll just, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get from all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes in Palmer, blowing in circles Rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. The water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome or havel beyond description. Like for all of our efforts, we don't actually really change anything. You think about great civilizations and the things that they have built are no longer in use in the way they were intended to be used, at least, and they are decaying. The law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy is applying to everything. It's all decaying more and more and more over time. What's the point in building anything, doing anything? Told you it's super upbeat book. Feeling encouraged yet? Good, because it gets worse, I promise. Here's the observation that nothing ever really changes. Everything returns to its original state. In fact, at one point, he goes on in just the next couple of verses, and he says, often people will say, see, there's something new. And then we look at it, and we discover, oh, no, it's not new. It's just different than the old one. That there's nothing really new under the sun, however terrible you think things are in our politics or in our laws or in crime in our nation, it's all happened before. It's all happened before at even a worse scale than maybe you're experiencing it right now. Havel, Havel, meaningless, meaningless. Which brings me to the experimentalist or hold my beer. <laughs> Root beer, of course, because we're in church. The, the teacher, the one who is being written about, whose sayings are being collected, the teacher is uniquely positioned as a king in Israel, as an extremely wealthy king 
in Israel and as a king in Israel who God has uniquely gifted in the area of wisdom. And what he's saying is, I'll do all the tests. I'll try everything there is to try under the sun, and I have the resources to do it. I personally don't know anyone who has the resources to do whatever they want. If you are here, please let me know, because we are doing a building campaign at some point in the future, because anyways, but, but as far as I know, like everyone has limited resources. I know there are maybe two or three people out there in the world who have unlimited resources, but this king has unlimited resources and access. And so he says, I'll try everything there is to try, and then I will report back to you if anything actually matters, if anything actually satisfies, if anything actually keeps producing the same level of purpose and meaning and pleasure over and over again. And so he goes to work in four specific experiments. The first one is the pursuit of knowledge. If I would just grow in my understanding, grow in wisdom and knowledge, information, then maybe that would produce satisfaction for me. So he pursues knowledge and understanding, and this is his conclusion. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. We currently live in a generation we're known as the information age. In fact, I would say most of this current generation feels this overwhelming obligation to fix everything that's wrong in the world, and they have access to everything that's wrong in the world all the time. Every time you start doom scrolling, it's called doom scrolling for a reason. Every time you start doom scrolling or you go look at the news, you are aware of every problem on the planet. From our villages in Alaska to crime in Wasilla to what's happening on the other side of the planet in Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm in communication right now over the past several days with a good friend of mine who is at war in Myanmar. And we're checking in each day. Did you make it through yesterday? I have access to all of that information right at my fingertips. So do you. And what we've discovered is that more information doesn't make for more happiness. It actually leads to anxiety and sorrow and depression and grief. And what he's saying is the more I learn, he's not saying it's wrong to know what's going on in the world. He's just saying that it won't actually produce satisfaction purpose, and joy, because most of the things happening in the world, there is nothing you can do about it from where you sit right now. It says, I've pursued knowledge. I've chased it down. And what I've discovered is the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge is only to increase sorrow. I'm not God. I can't fix all of it. And yet I'm being made aware of all of it all of the time. In fact, I go searching it out, and it has not produced purpose for me. The second experiment is this, the pleasure 
seeker. There's the pursuit of knowledge, but then there's the pleasure seeker. And he uniquely has the resources to take whatever pleasure he wants for as long as he wants, and he sets out to do exactly that. You want to sail the seas. You want to have all of the possessions that you could possibly imagine. You want to build all the homes you want to build. You want to have all of the friendships and relationships you possibly could. He has the resources to do it, and so he pursues pleasure, and this is his conclusion. I said to myself, come on, let us try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life, but I found that this too was meaningless. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Maybe if I'm drunk, it'll be more enjoyable. To cheer myself with wine, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. Most people can't afford to buy whatever they want or do whatever they want, but they could get a high if they wanted to off of wine. And so I set out to be a drunkard and discovered that that too was meaningless. It's what leads us to addiction, and yet we discover that the law of diminishing returns, that the next time I do the same amount, I don't get the same result, so I got to do more. It's got to be harder. I got to move further. I got to consume more, and suddenly we're in full-blown addiction, and even that isn't satisfying any longer. He says, I've tried all of it, and I'm just telling you, it doesn't satisfy So his third experiment is actually the monument builder. He's been the pleasure seeker, and he's pursued knowledge, but now he's going to be the monument builder. If I could build a tower in the middle of Wasilla, and it was called Walker Tower, I would be memorialized forever. If I could build great structures and beautiful gardens, I would leave a legacy, and people would remember me for all of eternity. And this is his conclusion. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. And yet he discovers that it actually doesn't matter if anyone else remembers you when you're dead. You're dead that it actually didn't produce anything for him that lasted beyond the grave. So why did he care if there was a monument to his name or a vineyard that could be observed? It wouldn't matter to him personally. And the last thing that he puts his hand to, and Alaskans are really good at this one, this is the workaholic. You want to meet some people who work hard, you meet some homesteaders and commercial fishermen and uh, people are going to be so proud of the amount of work I put. I could work anybody under the table, and so he gets after it. He's going to garner respect and meaning and purpose by working really hard, and this is what he says. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, or Havel. It was temporary. It was fleeting. It was going to be gone tomorrow. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Told you it was getting worse. It's my observation. Our desire for purpose and pleasure is eventually eclipsed by the dissatisfaction we feel and the diminishing returns that we see. In pastoral ministry, I don't think people are ribbing you. I think they just like, 
don't know what you actually do. So when I first started in pastoral ministry as a youth pastor, I was also coaching sports at the same time. And I'd show up to coach my students and they would routinely ask a question, something like this, like, so if you only work on Sunday, what do you do the rest of the week? I was like, come meet some people. <laughs> this, right? Like, what do you do the rest of the week? And, and I realized when I moved to Homer, I began pastoral ministry there, that when you're dealing with boat builders and homesteaders and commercial fishermen, they're not easily impressed people. If you're looking for an attaboy, you should not pastor in Alaska because Alaska's filled with like hardworking people and they're wondering, what are you doing with your whole week? And yet what I realized over time is that there was this drive or this ambition to always be so productive because if I was productive, it would give meaning to my life. And yet it doesn't. You're dissatisfied. You have to keep going in order to just keep up. It becomes an addiction. Now, he's going to identify not just the four experiments that the teacher performs, but he's also going to identify what I refer to as the three equalizers, that no matter whether you had all the resources in the world or not, there are three great equalizers. And the first one is this, time. You know this already, but it's worth saying out loud. You have the same amount of time as I do today. We only have so much time. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, no, 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 no. I, I actually may have more time than you. I heard you had blood clots in your lungs and you've got an aneurysm. I think I'm going to outlast you. And that may be true. I have no idea. But, but the reality is that the only time you actually have is the only time I actually have, and it's right now. You don't actually have an hour from now. If you get to an hour from now, you will but we actually all have the same time, this time right here. It's interesting, you find people either want to live in the past, like remember the glory days, Jimmy, when you were sponsored for Spartan races and soccer was the future for us and we were gonna do whatever we wanted to in the world and, and yet time has marched past that moment, more so for me than you probably. Than doing any number of other things that you could be doing. I chose to be here rather than doing any number of other things that I could be doing, but we're spending moments right now. In fact, as a pastor, the thought that is always in my head is, I do not want to waste the moments you're willing to spend right now here, because these are the moments that we have. Hopefully, they shape us to live the moments down the road better, but the only moment we're guaranteed is this moment, and time is marching by for all of us, and I don't get that moment back. I may improve the next, but I don't get to relive that one. It just marches by for every one of us. 
Here's what he says. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave this moment to others. Everything I have earned, and who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. You recognize what he's saying. I've heard several friends, um, I have, well, several. I have a couple of friends who can afford to fly first class everywhere they go. And they've just made the decision that they're going to fly first class because either they will or their kids will in the future, right? So whether that's right or wrong, I have no idea. Uh, but, but the truth is that what they recognize is that when the day comes, everything they've accumulated actually means nothing to them. The next generation, their successor, will take control of it. And who knows whether they will use it wisely or they won't. But I spent moments making money, and that money is not going in a U-Haul with me into eternity. It all stays behind. The second great equalizer is this, death. I know you think time is marching on to death, but time is actually really about this moment, the moment I actually get to live in, but also death is coming for all of us. It could be a long time. It could be a short time. We just don't know. We have no idea. And he recognizes that as well, that the animals don't actually have an advantage um, uh, over us nor us over the animals. We both breathe and then we both die. I think about, I believe it was last year, um, uh, some individuals had shown up at a CrossFit gym in Anchorage. All the snow had piled up on the roof. They were showing up at the CrossFit gym in order to stay in shape so that they could live longer and the roof collapsed on the building. The reality is that you and I have no guarantees of the next moments. Whether death is a long time away or a short time away, it's still coming. And so this is what he has to say about death. I also thought about the human condition, how God proves to people that they are like animals. For people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over animals. How meaningless both go to the same place. They came from the dust and they return to the dust. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, preacher man, I know that the Bible promises eternal life, but he's talking about here and now in this moment. He's actually driving at what matters right now. He'll identify eternity. Don't worry. He's going to get to that in the story. But right now he's saying, you and I, we and the animals share the same fate. We breathe air and then we stop breathing air and we die. I told you, it's a super encouraging book. Like, you should just read it for your daily devotional every single day. Get it tattooed on your back. Um, all right, here's the third one, the third great equalizer, chance. The unexpected event. Here's what he has to say. I have observed something under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. And the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. Somebody asked me after last service, you don't really believe in chance, do you? I said, no, I understand there's a sovereign God of all the universe, but remember, he's writing from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, and I can tell you this, life isn't fair. You know it, I know it. 
uh, just take, if you've ever pursued a collegiate level athletics, right? If you've ever pursued professional sports, you know that maybe your parents had enough money or resource to put you on an Olympic development team so you could be playing with those guys so that Teams USA could spot you and call you up to the next piece or that you could show up at a university setting and you knew somebody who knew somebody or your goalie ended up on that other team and he told them about you, but that when you get on a team, there are guys who are better than you. They just never got in front of the right people. You know that plays a role in how things happen in the world. Call it fate, call it chance, call it what you want to, but it ain't fair, I know that. And what he's identifying is that even the wise do go hungry sometimes. It's in contrast to Proverbs. Proverbs feels like a book of promises. If you do this, you get this. If you train up your child in the way they should go, when they're old, they'll never depart from it. But we all know kids who have departed from it, right? The reality is that Proverbs is a book of principles, not a book of promises, but it's in contrast to Ecclesiastes where he's saying sometimes it doesn't go well for people who did the right thing, which is true. And if that's true, how are you guaranteed that if you do all the right things, you'll get the right outcomes in this life? It's just meaningless, meaningless. Havel, Havel, all is meaningless. Here's the question. If chance, time, and death will rob us all, how should we live our lives right now? If these three things are coming for all of us, how should I live my life right here and right now? This is what he has to say, Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 13. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time or its own moment. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. He's identifying something that actually is hardwired into us, this drive for purpose, this drive for meaning, this drive for significance, this longing for more time is actually something hardwired into humans and it does not exist in animals. And the reason is that you were created for more than just these moments. But he also has infused these moments with beautiful things if you could learn to live in them rather than waiting for them. He goes on, so I concluded there is nothing better. He's not, don't, don't hear this as like, well, I guess this is as good as you're going to get. He's actually identifying something really good, really beautiful. I've concluded there is nothing better. You hear it different now? Rather than, I guess all you get is, I've concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we have. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. This uh, last week, I believe it was, um, I found myself exhausted. 
If you've been here the past two Sundays, there was um, a lot of stuff we were gearing up to communicate all at once. What's happening over the next 11 months, these successions and plans that we've been working on for a long time. And then there were some challenging things that we were navigating as well. But all in all, I felt like things were going really, really well. But what I realized is that it didn't matter if things felt like they were going good. I was still completely exhausted and depleted. It had been about three weeks since I had taken a day off, and I, I was sort of at this place where I was super discouraged. And, um, and my wife, I believe it was on Wednesday, uh, Kitri looked at me and she said, um, I'm worried about you, which she doesn't say very often. But then the next thing that she said was, I think I'm going to call a couple of your friends and tell them that they need to help you find some time off, some time to take a break which she never does. I'm like, don't you call my friends? I'll tell my own friends. I'm a big boy. And uh, so I did. I told my friends. Uh, but, but, but what I realized is that um, I have this uh, trick that I've learned over the years. If I don't have any vacation time scheduled, I feel like I'm trapped. Ugh, there's no way out. This is no, and then I start looking at opportunities and well, nope, I guess Pete's going to be gone for three weeks and then another three weeks. Pete's never here. And then Paul's going to be gone and Joel's gone doing missions trips all over the world. And like, I begin to convince myself that I can't take any time off because somebody else is going to be taking time off. But, but if I'll just put something on the calendar, which by the way, I did, it starts tomorrow. Uh, but if I'll just put something on the calendar, it's all of a sudden I'm like, I can make it. I don't even care if it's a year away. I can make it. I can power through anything as long as I see something that I'm headed for. And then I started digging into Ecclesiastes, and I thought, that's a great, you know, pro tip. That's a great trick that I can play on my mind, but it actually isn't how I was created to live. Like, what if I could actually find meaning and purpose and significance in each and every moment leading up to this moment where I take some time off, right? Like, what I was realizing is I was actually living for the future rather than discovering what Ecclesiastes is begging us to entertain, that all your wealth, all your hard work, all the pleasure, all the monuments that you and I build, none of those things will actually cause you to live in total joy and contentment right now. The only thing that will do that is the recognition that God is here in this moment. And it's actually the only one I get to live in. God's present in my future. God's present in my past. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's right. But, but the reality is I only get to live in this one. And so to discover what he's doing in this moment is actually the place where I can live at contentment. I can live full of purpose. If I can learn to see it that way, it would change how I approach everything else. That's actually the intention of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. It is not to lead you to a place of total despair. It's to remind you that there are a whole bunch of things you have no control over, but right now you get to live. With the person you're sitting next to, you have this moment. Don't waste it. Principle number one is this. The pathway to happiness is to embrace the present and to delight in the gifts of today. You can't actually embrace the future. You're actually only embracing something you're hoping for in the present, because the present is the only moment you can embrace. And so we either squander it or we steward it. 
And how do you want to live in this moment, and the next one, and the next one, and the next? Ecclesiastes 3.14, and I know that whatever God does is final. It's already established. He already knows it. He's already set it out. Whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. I think I probably grew up with a little bit of a misunderstanding of this word fear. Maybe you've grown up with a misunderstanding of this word fear because it does actually mean terror, right? But it's more in the sense of awe. I recognize the sheer authority power, dominion, control that God has. Maybe you could liken it on a much smaller scale to climbing a mountain. If you've ever done any mountaineering, you know that at any moment, any number of things could happen. But if you don't respect the mountain, the mountain can take your life like that. The same is true for pilots. The same is true in any number of other things that we pursue in life. But if you don't have a healthy awe or fear or understanding of the power and control that that thing could have over your life, then you will not live in a way that is sustainable or honoring. He says, this is what I think we need to remember is that God is awesome. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's actually already laid everything out, but you can also trust him because he's all-good. And outside of that, good luck. That God's purpose is that we would discover who he is so that we could bring our lives into alignment with his purposes in this moment right here and right now. Which brings me to principle number two. The pathway to eternal purpose is actually through recognition and reverence of God's power. You know you were made for more than this moment, When they're describing life is but a breath, he's describing life under the sun because that's the other phrase in Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is meaningless. What he recognizes, probably not theologically, but he recognizes intuitively, is that all of it will go away at some point. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but everything under the sun is meaningless. But everything I would invest with my time, with my gifting, with my hard work, with my vision into eternity, that actually has the potential to last forever. So how will you spend, because we're all spending them right now, the brief moments we have under the sun. The last, our longing to experience eternal significance, this is what the author is saying, is actually compelling evidence of an eternal life giver. This idea that you and I are very different than the animals. It's true, we breathe and then we stop breathing and then we die and then we turn into dirt that's, that's all true. What he identifies as he moves forward is that there is something different about you and I, and it's actually this piece that's wired into us. It gets perverted into temporary and temporal ambition. I'm going to build homes and monuments. I'm going to pursue pleasure, and I'm going to chase it down. I'm going to pursue knowledge and understanding. I'm going to work hard for respect and for dignity, but all of those things are actually hints that you were actually created for eternity. He put eternity in your heart because there is this longing inside of you and I to invest in something that outlasts us. He says that, that desire 
It actually comes from God. You were designed to invest it in a place that you get to enjoy it forever. I invite you to stand with us. I was thinking about, maybe you've seen the TV series before. I grew up much of my life in Oklahoma, Tennessee, in the South. Lots of thunderstorms, but specifically lots of tornadoes. Tornadoes sound like a freight train when they're getting close. And they can just wreck havoc in a heartbeat. But they have these shows, the storm chasers. And they got these cars all kitted out and tricked out in order to chase the storms down. But it's such a rush, I can only imagine. Like, I don't know what it would be like to be inside of a Humvee chasing a tornado down. But it's got to be a rush. Like, it sounds like something I would thoroughly enjoy doing, at least until I got killed doing it. But, but I realize that storm is going to blow itself out. And you're going to chase the next storm. It's the imagery used in Ecclesiastes is that chasing all of these things is like chasing the wind. As soon as you think you got your hands around it, it's vaporized and it's gone. And you're just waiting for the next thing to chase. Stop waiting and start living. This is the moment you and I have. So Jesus, would you teach us to live fully present? It's not at odds with stewardship or planning or investing or all of those things. You're talking about priority. Would you show us the places where we're missing the moments we're actually in? The things that actually matter, both here and now and in eternity. Would you give us clarity of vision? For those in this room who have never said yes to that pull towards eternity, that longing for purpose and meaning and things that outlast our brief existence, would you remind them that they were made for more and that you have invited them in through your Son to eternal life? Jesus, we yield again to you. We say your ways are higher than ours. That even in those moments where you're reminding us in books like Ecclesiastes that everything is meaningless, you're actually inviting us to invest in the only things that do matter. Thank you for that reminder. God, I pray as we move into this week, as we move into this next seconds and minutes and hours and days, we would learn to live present investing in the things that have the potential to last for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite our prayer ministry teams to be available here on both sides. Um, just a reminder, the Ascent class happens tonight. If you're new to Church on the Rock, you're wondering what we're all about, what's our story, and then what we see as potential for you, we invite you back out. They're going to have wings and things. You're not missing anything big, some game called the Super something that I can't say on live stream. So, all right. Hey, God bless you guys. You are dismissed. Church on the Rock. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.